When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Estros, episode 19. The North Remembers. Boilers all books. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and I'm in England. And I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. Today we're going to be taking a close look at the political situation in the North following the murder of Rob Stark as we consider the possibility and even the probability that some form of resistance to the Bolton Frey alliance that has seized control there is going on. Yeah, that's right. It all began when Great John Umber declared a return to the old ways and named Rob Stark King in the North back in game. Rob received the homage not only of all the Northern Lords, but of most of the River Lords as well. And then in Clash, Rob sent his terms to Joffrey, which really boiled down to these words. Henceforth, we are no part of their realm, but a free and independent kingdom as of old. So, operating under the assumption that after the Red Wedding, those lords that supported Rob would not wish to return to the realm under the hated Lannisters who rained so much death and destruction upon their houses, many fans have sought out evidence that the Northern lords and their counterparts in the Riverlands are conspiring to preserve the Stark Kingdom in the North. And as many of you know, this theory is popularly known as the Grand Northern Conspiracy, or GNC for short. Lady Gwynne has written a lot on the subject in the past. She's been quite a heavy contributor. And for this episode, we've also consulted with our friend Yeed, who you might say is an expert on the subject. In fact, her multi-part Tumblr essay, entitled The Grand Northern Conspiracy, which we'll be linking to on our website, remains the go-to analysis of the theory, drawing from many ideas and conversations across fan forums. But while we'll be drawing upon evidence compiled by many fans over the years, today we're going to be giving you our own take on what we think is going on in the North. 
Yes, we will. And because we're dealing with a huge cast of characters, I thought I'd mention that we'll also have a link to a project that I did a couple of years ago called the GNC Locator. This is a huge spreadsheet identifying the current locations of um, just a couple hundred of the key characters. So check that out if you feel like it. And right now, we're going to have a brief rundown of the major players as we see it. Most readers will recall that just prior to his death, Rob signed a will in the presence of his mother. The contents of the will form the basis of a lot of speculation about conspiration in the North, and we're going to be looking into that. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we're going to be putting under the microscope today. Now, at the very same meeting where Rob signed his will, witnessed by his uncle Edmure, Galbert Glover, Mage Mormont, Great John Umber, Raynor Westerling, and Jason Malister... Rob outlined his plan to retake Moat Kaelin from the Ironborn and dispatched Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover with Jason Malister with orders to make their way into the Neck and to contact Howland Reed. And it's very likely that Mage and Galbert did arrive in the Neck, while we know for sure that Jason Malister remained defiantly besieged at Seaguard until near the end of Feast. And as for the other witnesses, while Reynold Westerling was allegedly killed at the Red Wedding, and the Great John remains a prisoner at the Twins, Edmure, though now heading to Casterly Rock with Jane Westerling and a guard of 400 men under the command of Sir Forley Prester, was recently at River Run, where he had the opportunity to meet with his uncle Brynden. And then there's the revenant Catelyn Stark, Lady Stoneheart has been seen in the vicinity of the Neck, has retrieved Rob's crown, and has sent Brotherhood Without Banners operatives to Riverrun and possibly elsewhere, as we discussed in our BWB and Theon episodes. All in all, there have been opportunities for news of the will to have been spread by several of the witnesses, as we'll be talking about today. And in addition, we have some interesting activities on the part of Lord Wyman Manderley, who has a fleet that could number as many as 50 warships and a force of fighting men in White Harbour that's probably the equal to Roos Bolton's, and who has made clear to Davos Seaworth his feelings about the phrase. Lord Wyman has a connection with Galbert Glover's younger brother, Robert, who was last seen in White Harbour. But he also has a connection with the Umbers, who were ordered by Roderick Cassell in Rob's name to aid the Mandalays in constructing that fleet. And let's not forget that the Umbers, specifically the Great John's uncles, Morse and Hother, are playing a role in the goings-on both inside and outside of Winterfell in A Dance with Dragons. And they're not the only ones who have men both within and without Winterfell. A close look at the composition of Stannis' camp and the forces under Roose Bolton's command reveals a surprising amount of overlap there. Speaking of Winterfell and loyalty, Lady Barbary Dustin appears to be loyal to Roose Bolton. Or is she? Doth the lady protest too much? Is anyone loyal to the Boltons and Freys? Lady Sybil Glover has recently offered Stannis aid, as has Alisane Mormont. With Glover's and Mormont's in the neck and with Stannis, mountain clansmen and Karstarks with Stannis and at the wall, and Umber's inside and outside of Winterfell, 
And who knows where Mandley's main force and Robert Glover are? The stage is set for speculation about conspiration and resistance. But are we dealing with a unified conspiracy or something else more akin to the early French resistance of World War II? Individual cells of organized resistors working independently towards a common goal? Or is it something in between? What are the intentions of the Northern Lords with regards to Jon Snow and Stannis Baratheon? Just how grand is the Grand Northern Conspiracy? For the next two hours, we'll go through the various factions one by one and look at the evidence for spy networks, conspiracy, and resistance. We'll end by speculating how the factions might or might not be tied together and make a few predictions for the Winds of Winter. And we'll give a heads up right now that we're going to be dipping into a couple of details from Theon's Winds of Winter sample chapter, so definitely a few light spoilers. Okay, and first we're going to start with an overview of the North. We think understanding the families, loyalties and traditions of this northern culture is absolutely essential in forming theories about the current shadowy politics playing out there. So let's get started by considering why the North remembers. In the North, they tell the tale of the Rat Cook, who served an Andal king the flesh of the king's own son, baked into a pie. For this, he was punished by being turned into a monstrous rat that ate its own young. Yet, the punishment was incurred not for killing the king's son, or for feeding him to the king, but for the breaking of guest right. Okay, so now we're going to take a look at Northern culture and a saying that seems to go right to the heart of true Northmen. The phrase, the North remembers, occurs four times in the books. Wyman Manderley and Barbary Dustin say it, as does Theon Greyjoy in his Winds of Winter spoiler chapter. But the first time we see the phrase, it comes from Rob Stark himself, explaining to his uncle Brynden Tully why Harry and Karstark is bound to be his enemy if Rob executes Lord Rickard. So this phrase doesn't originate with the heinous murder of Rob Stark and his bannermen. It precedes that, and it sounds very much like an aphorism, the way Rob says it. Yeah, we interpret it as a saying that's not new or unfamiliar to Northmen, And as such, it probably indicates something special about their culture. So let's consider that culture now. Most of the families in the north descend from the first men of that region and worship the old gods, with the notable exception of the Mandalays, who arrived as immigrants from the Reach around 1,000 years ago, and worship the new gods, though they're still of first men descent, the world book has told us. That's right. The Manderleys were driven from the Reach by an alliance of Tyrells and Gardeners and were given lands in White Harbor by the Starks. For that act, the Starks earned the undying loyalty of House Manderley, as shown in this speech by young Wyla Manderley. A thousand years before the conquest, a promise was made and oaths were sworn in the wolf's den before the old gods and the new. When we were sore beset and friendless, hounded from our homes and in peril of our lives, the wolves took us in and nourished us and protected us against our enemies. The city is built upon the land they gave us. In return, 
We swore that we should always be their men, stark men. So there's something that at least one family in the north remembers. One thing for us to remember is that when the Andals conquered the rest of Westeros, they failed completely to make inroads into the north. The world book tells us, It was the north and the north alone that was able to keep the Andals at bay thanks to the impenetrable swamps of the Neck and the ancient keep of Moat Caelin. The number of Andal armies that were destroyed in the Neck cannot be easily reckoned, and so the Kings of Winter preserved their independent rule for many centuries to come. So all these northern families are unequivocally first men, and if we look at the Stark family tree from the world of Ice and Fire, although it only covers the last ten or so generations, one thing that stands out is the fact that the Starks have married into almost every family involved in the politics of the North today. Historical Stark men have taken wives from House Karstark, Glover, Locke, Riswell, Manderley, and Norrie, and most recently from Locke again and Flint of the Mountains. And Stark women have married into House Umber and Kerwin that we know of. The only marriages noted to families outside the North in these past ten generations were to House Royce and House Blackwood, which are both noted First Men families. And what's interesting about this is that, in spite of the apparent scarcity of Starks, and the fact that the closest cousins are noted to be the offspring of those Royce girls from the Vale, nearly every major house in the North, with the possible exception of House Bolton, with whom no alliance is ever noted, could be related to the Starks by marriage at some point. Certainly, the loyalty they inspire almost seems the stuff of legend, from the Reed's Harvest Feast vow to the devotion of the Hill Clans to the Ned's Little Girl, and to Liana Mormont's declaration, Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. Mm. Well, we learn from the world of ice and fire that the kings of winter, or the kings in the north as they became known, spent millennia consolidating their hold over the lands north of the Neck by defending its shores from external invaders and reavers, and internally through a series of wars for dominion that in several cases ended with stark victories marked by intermarriage with the defeated family. The notable exception seems to be the Voltans, where in spite of a centuries-long struggle that ended in a stark victory, in the end, no marriage alliance is noted. So these northern families are all very closely connected, and the power of the Starks to maintain stability in their lands seems to be really highly valued, as the little that Bran meets in A Storm of Swords tells him. When there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the King's Road in her name-day gown and still go unmolested, and travellers could find fire, bread and salt at many an inn and hold fast. Well, besides the clear reference to guest right in that passage, we should remember that in a country where the unforgiving landscape combines with the ever-present threat of winter, the value of good and powerful lords cannot be underestimated. 
And so the kings in the north could provide safety and some measure of stability to their subjects. We could debate the possibility that there's some mystical or legendary source for the Stark's power and the origin of the phrase, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell, which seems to be alluded to in that passage. But that's probably beyond our scope here. Yeah, we want to focus mostly on the politics today. And the takeaway seems to be that the Starks were powerful and respected lords whose vassals really value their abilities to provide law and order, stability, and perhaps a degree of prosperity as well. All the things a good lord in a feudal society should provide his vassals and subjects. And these people who owe their fealty to the Starks of Winterfell, for the most part, share one important thing with their overlords, and that is their worship of the old gods and adherence to a cultural code of conduct that goes back unbroken for countless generations. The people of the North seem to hold to a culture that's harsher than that in the South in many ways, but at the same time, less complex. Justice is delivered in a time-honored way. As Ned tells Bran at the beginning of Game of Thrones, our way is the older way. The blood of the first men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. If you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. When Ned continues on to tell Bran, a ruler who hides behind paid executioners soon forgets what death is. And this must be the key. In a harsh land where death, in some form, might always be right around the corner, it's absolutely essential to value life, deliver certain judgment, and not forget that death comes for all in the end. And while that scene in the first chapter of Game illustrates stark justice, and makes clear that the crimes of oath-breaking and desertion two themes that will be very important much later on in Jon Snow's arc, are worth a man's life. There are other crimes that are deemed more heinous in the North, as the World Book tells us. There was certainly no revelation since guest right is a huge issue in the books, but the World Book spells it out for us here. One notable custom that the Northmen hold dearer than any other is guest right, the tradition of hospitality by which a man may offer no harm to a guest beneath his roof, nor a guest to his host. The Andals hold to something like it as well, but it looms less large in southern minds. In his text, Justice and Injustice in the North, Judgments of Three Stark Lords, Maester Egbert notes that crimes in the North in which guest right was violated were rare, but were invariably treated as harshly as the direst of treasons, only kinslaying is deemed as sinful as the violations of these laws of hospitality. So of the northern laws that are specifically noted, guest right, kinslaying, treason, oath-breaking and desertion are deemed specifically worthy of harsh judgment, most likely death. What all of these crimes have in common is their destabilising nature, in a country where life is both hard and fragile, 
adherence to a code of conduct that values honesty, trust and community is really essential. Destabilizing the community by betraying one of these values must be met with harsh judgment to preserve the greater good. But while all of these themes are relevant to today's discussion, we're going to focus on guess right now, since that has the most direct effect on the plot. Right, it certainly does. Going back to A Storm of Swords, Mance told John, The laws of hospitality are as old as the first men, and sacred as a heart tree. And of course, the nature of the betrayal at the Red Wedding is tragically spelled out by Catelyn to Rob, who told him, Once you have eaten of Lord Walder's bread and salt, you have the guest right, and the laws of hospitality protect you beneath his roof. So guest right is a sacred law, held dear by northerners, as mentioned in the world book, and as illustrated in the tale of the Rat Cook. That's right, the Rat Cook of the Night Fort for reasons never identified in the text, served a visiting Andal king, his own son, baked into a pie. For that, the gods transformed him into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young, and who, according to old Nan, had roamed the night fort ever since, devouring his children. But critically... Despite the nature of the punishment, it was not for the crime of murder, or even of serving a man his own son in a pie, that the gods cursed him. Old Nan tells Bran, A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. So this will be very significant in our discussions shortly, But to start, we just want to emphasize how seriously this concept of guest right is held in the North, and how violations of it are deemed not just a crime, but an affront to the gods. The old gods still seem to hold tremendous power in the lives of most Northmen. Their worship is an intensely personal one, not mediated by priests or septons, but taking place directly with the trees who represent the gods. Their laws seem to be few and simple, but held sacred, and the fact that the trees themselves represent the gods no doubt lends itself to the feeling that the gods are always watching, always aware. Well, the trees do have eyes. So one other thing that strikes us besides the violation of guest right being unforgivable in the eyes of the gods is Old Nan's comment that... A man has the right to vengeance. It seems that in terms of pure vengeance, as long as you don't violate one of the sacred laws of the old gods, like guest right and kinship, anything goes, even baking a man's sons into a pie. So with that in mind, let's start to evaluate some of the strands of potential conspiration in the North by looking at select groups, motivations and opportunities for seeking vengeance. Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north, whose name is Stark. So now we're going to discuss Rob's will and the Mormonts and Glovers. As we mentioned in the intro... 
Not only were Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover among the signers of the will in Storm, they were also chosen by Rob to conduct a mission into the Neck to make contact with the elusive Howland Reed. Yeah, that's right. Rob was planning to retake Monk Kalen from the Ironborn and return to the North to set things to rights there. His orders to Mage and Galbert were to travel to Seaguard with Lord Jason Malister and from there to, quote, Go upriver flying my banner. The Krennic men will find you. I want two ships to double the chances of my message reaching Highland Reed. Lady Mage shall go on one, Galbert on the second. You'll carry letters for those lords of mine who remain in the north, but all the commands within will be false, in case you have the misfortune to be taken. Tell Howland Reed he is to send guides to me two days after I have started up the causeway, to the center battle, where my own standard flies. Three hosts will leave the twins, but only two will reach Moat Kalen. Mine own battle will melt away into the neck to re-emerge on the fever. If we moved swiftly once my uncle's wed, we can all be in position by year's end. We will fall upon the moat from three sides on the first day of the new century. So given the urgency of the mission and the relative closeness of Seaguard, it seems very likely that Mage and Galbert made it into the neck and made contact with Howland Reed as planned. As Yeed points out in her analysis, the Kranigman seemed to be waging a guerrilla war on the Ironborn at Moat Kaelin when Theon arrives there, which she sees as a possible evidence that Mage and Galbert indeed made contact with Howland. And one thing it's been carefully noted that Mage and Galbert carried with them, in addition to false letters and secret battle plans, is knowledge of the will they witnessed immediately before their departure. So, not the will itself, but knowledge of its contents. In the intro, we outlined who the six signers of the document were. But to review, it was Mage and Galbert, and Lord Jason Malister, and the others were Edmure Tully, Great John Umber, and Reynald Westerling. Now, Catelyn Stark witnessed the scene, which was shown through her point of view, but she didn't sign the document, although we have reason to believe she knew, or at least suspected, what the contents were, as we'll discuss. So what exactly are the contents of Rob's will, and why is everyone so excited about this? This is one of the key factors in theorising about conspiration in the North. And to assess that, we have to go back to Cat 5 in Storm, and a conversation between Rob and Cat at Old Stones. Rob tells his mother they had hoped to leave his wife expecting a child, but that she had not conceived. He then says, a king must have an heir. If I should die in my next battle, the kingdom must not die with me. By law, Sansa is next in line of succession, so Winterfell and the North would pass to her, to her and her lord husband, Tyrion Lannister. I cannot allow that. I will not allow that. That dwarf must never have the North. So Cat agrees with Rob and goes on to tell him about his cousins in the Vale, offspring of his great-grandfather's sister who married a Royce and had three daughters who married Vale lordlings. And we'll discuss that particular situation in a future Vale episode, but what's relevant here 
is that Rob rejects her suggestion, reminding his mother instead that his father had four sons. And what follows is a furious argument about bastards, Westerosi history, Aya's rights, Jon Snow's vows to the Night's Watch and his character. Rob declares Aya is dead and sees no impediment to legitimising Jon and releasing him from his vows to the Night's Watch using precedent and his own royal power to issue decrees. Rob is unequivocal in his intent, stating, Should I die without issue, I want him, John, to succeed me as king in the north. I had hoped you would support my choice. Cat's reply, I cannot. In all else, Rob, in everything, but not in this. This folly. Do not ask it. This is met with stubbornness from Rob. I don't have to. I'm the king. So, when the will is presented to and signed by his advisors at the end of that chapter, Rob says, I have no son as yet. My brothers Bran and Rickon are dead, and my sister is wed to a Lannister. I've thought long and hard about who might follow me. I command you now as my true and loyal lords to fix your seals to this document as witnesses to my decision. There's no indication there that Rob has changed his mind, which seemed quite set in the earlier scene, and Kat thinks how she's been trapped and defeated, and so it seems like she at least is certain that John has been named Rob's heir. Now the question of the will itself is a really interesting one. We've identified all of the witnesses, but what about the actual document? Yeed wonders if it could have been secreted in Hagsmire, where it was signed, which might explain Lady Stoneheart's presence there with the BWB in Feast, and their subsequent journey into the Neck, possibly to deliver it to Howland Reed for safekeeping. Well, whether they have the actual will or not, with Lady Stoneheart's probable knowledge and Edmure Tully's certain knowledge, by the end of A Feast for Crows, we can trace a very definite chain of how knowledge of the document may have spread in the Riverlands, and we discuss this in our Brotherhood Without Banners episode. It seems the Brotherhood may know of it, and Brynden Tully as well, after meeting with Edmure prior to his escape. Messages may have been given to those two men from Riverrun who elected to take the black, as we mentioned in that episode, and we'll get back to later. And there's a possibility that Lady Stoneheart, or one of her lieutenants, who, as mentioned, traveled into the Neck, has been in contact with Holland Reed. And that brings us back to Mage and Galbert, who we can be reasonably sure also made contacts with Howland in the Neck. So how could their knowledge of the will have been leveraged? And what evidence is there of either of them being involved in conspiring against the Boltons, or being involved in anything at all post-Storm? Well, for starters, there's that clandestine, low-level war the Kranigmen seem to be waging on Moat Kaelin early in A Dance with Dragons. Then we have the case of Alison Mormont, second daughter of Lady Mage. In A Dance with Dragons, she joins up with Stannis as he retakes Deepwood Mott from Asha Greyjoy with a force of fighting men that she had rallied from her family's holdings and brought south, apparently for that very purpose. But since she couldn't have known she'd find Stannis there, 
Her initial purpose seems to have been to free Deepwood on her own. Yeah, here's the text of the letter Stannis sends to John. And we had other help, unexpected but most welcome, from a daughter of Bear Island, Alisane Mormont, whose men name her the She-Bear, hid fighters inside a gaggle of fishing sloops and took the Iron Men unawares where they lay off the strand. Greyjoy's longships are burned or taken, her crews slain or surrendered. More Northmen are coming in as word spreads of our victory. Fisherfolk, free riders, hillmen, crofters from the deep of the wolfswood, villagers who fled their homes along the stony shore to escape the Ironmen, and survivors from the battle outside the gates of Winterfell, men once sworn to the Hornwoods, the Kerwins, and the Tallhearts. We are five thousand strong as I write, our numbers swelling every day. In addition to Ali Mormont's carefully planned assault on the Ironmen, note that Stannis also mentions survivors from the battle outside Winterfell. These are men who will know firsthand of Ramsay Bolton's treachery, Hornwoods, Kerwins, and Tallhearts, and all those families are also represented inside Winterfell. And we'll be getting back to that, but it's Ali Mormont's presence that really stands out here. When Asha Greyjoy later asks her about her family, Ali says, Five we were, all girls. Lyanna is back on Bear Island. Lyra and Jory are with our mother. Daisy was murdered. Now this Lyanna is the one who sent that charming rejection letter to Stannis back in John's first dance chapter. This was months earlier, with Stannis still at the wall. So we can conclude that Ali Mormont who had most likely been at Bear Island prior to that, had departed by that time with the possible intent of taking Deepwood Mott herself. But there's another conclusion to be drawn here. Note that Ali speaks as though she's been in communication with her family. Yeah, that's right. She knows that her sister Daisy was murdered at the Red Wedding which is not remarkable on its own since the casualties would have become common knowledge. But she also knows that her other two sisters, who accompanied Lady Mage on her mission, are safe with her mother, who left on that secret mission just prior to the Red Wedding, and whose whereabouts should have been unknown in its aftermath. So it looks pretty obvious that Alisanne Mormont has had messages from her mother, wherever she is. So what could have been the contents of those messages? Did they come by Raven, or were they delivered in person? We can only speculate. But Ali could have received all the news from the northern host in the south, and most importantly, information about Rob's will. And if Ali Mormont was in the north during the sack of Winterfell, she might have given her mother confirmation that Ramsay Bolton was the culprit and not Theon Greyjoy. Yeah, a message from Mage bearing news of Rob's will might explain two things. First, Lyanna Mormont's passionate statement to Stannis, Bear Island knows no king but the king in the north whose name is Stark, which seems quite out of place considering Rob Stark's recent death, unless you fill in knowledge of his heir. 
Second, knowledge of the will making it to Bear Island, which lies in close proximity to the hills where the northern clansmen live, just might explain the presence of the Nori and Old Flint at the wall. Yeah, after Stannis' visit to the clans, these two senior leaders showed up at the wall for Alice Carstark's wedding to the Magna of Then. Here's the passage. Old Flint and the Nori had been given places of high honour just below the dais. Both men had been too old to march with Stannis. They had sent their sons and grandsons in their stead. But they had each been quick enough to descend on Castle Black for Alice Carstark's wedding. Each had brought a wetness to the wall as well. John was grateful. But he did not believe for a moment that two such hoary old warriors would have hied down from their hills for that alone. Each had brought a tale of fighting men, five for old Flint, twelve for the Nori, all worshipped the old gods of the north, those same gods worshipped by the free folk beyond the wall. Yet here they sat, drinking to a marriage hallowed by some queer red god from beyond the seas. Hmm, so John is a bit puzzled by their presence there, and decides that they must be there to assess the wildling situation and his handling of it. Proponents of the GNC agree that the two men are there to assess John, but rather on his merits to be the Stark, based upon their potential knowledge of Rob's will. It doesn't seem like that can be ruled out, since if Ali Mormont was at Bear Island until recently and received news from her mother, it's reasonable to think that she'd begin to spread that news among neighbours and allies. So the Mormonts and clansmen may be in the know about Rob's will, and some of them may be formulating plans that involve Jon Snow. But it's also made clear in Asher's POV that Ali Mormont is as devoted to the destruction of the Boltons and the rescue of Arya Stark as the Hill Clans are when it says, Roose Bolton could not be suffered to hold Winterfell, and the Ned's girl must be rescued from the clutches of his bastard. So said Morgan Liddell, Brandon Norrie, Big Bucket Wool, the Flints, even the She-Bear. So conspiring against the Boltons, at least, is hardly a hidden motive for the Mormons, although beyond that is mainly just speculation. But what can we infer about the Glovers? Well, Galbert Glover, who was last seen with Lady Mage Mormont, has no wife, and his family home, Deepwood Mott, had been left in the care of his brother Robert's wife, Lady Sybil, from whom Asha Greyjoy seized it. Remember that Robert Glover was one of the men sent to Duskendale by Roose Bolton, who was ransomed by Rob in exchange for Martin Lannister just before the Red Wedding. Robert Glover is next seen by Davos in White Harbor in A Dance with Dragons. Right, when he first arrives in White Harbor, Davos hears that Robert Glover has been trying to raise men, but that Lord Mandley had, quote, turned a deaf ear to his pleas. But when Davos is brought from his imprisonment to a clandestine meeting with Lord Wyman, it turns out to be Robert Glover who guides him. Here's the exchange. Who are you? Robert Glover, 
if it please my lord. Glover, your seat was deepwood mot. My brother Galbert's seat, it was and is, thanks to your King Stannis. He has taken deepwood back from the iron bitch who stole it and offers to restore it to its rightful owners. Notice that while Robert could have assumed that his elder brother was dead at the Red Wedding, along with his host's son, Wendell, like Ali Mormont, he seems to have knowledge that his brother is safe and alive somewhere. If ravens or messengers can get from the Neck to Bear Island, then why not White Harbor? Indeed, why not Deepwood Mott? Yeah, although Asher has been in possession of the castle since some time in Clash, she did leave it to return to the Iron Islands for the King's Moot and a brief visit to Harlor in Feast. She brought Lady Sybil and her children with her, but may well have left Galbert Glover's maester there in their absence. The maester is certainly there and in charge of the ravens in dance when Asher returned to Deepwood with Lady Sybil, notes, Lady Sybil all but lived in a godswood, praying for her children and her husband's safe return. So we wonder if messages have made it through to Deepwood from Galber or Robet, and if that time spent in the Godswood was cover for some clandestine communication. It wouldn't be the first time that George has used that particular device, and remember Sansa and Dantos in King's Landing. Yeah, again in the Godswood. And while Bran noticed that Lady Sybil wasn't involved in the day-to-day operation of Deepwood back in Clash, that was soon after the birth of her infant daughter, before Robert and Galbert disappeared and her children taken to Harlaw. By the end of Dance, Deepwood has been liberated by Stannis, and Lady Sybil has given him men and guides to aid him in his mission to rid Winterfell of the Boltons and rescue Arya Stark. It certainly seems like Lady Sybil, who was born Sybil Locke and is possibly one of the Stark's nearer cousins in the north, might be up for a bit of cloak and dagger at this point. Well, that is definitely speculation on our part, but we just wanted to point out the opportunity there. The real cloak and dagger work in the Glover family seems to be in the hands of Sybil's husband, Robert. So in our next segment... We'll look closely at what's going on in White Harbor, Lord Wyman Manderley, and Frey Pies. But first, it's time for a reading. Here's Lord Wyman Manderley addressing Davos Seaworth in one of the signature moments of the Northern Resistance. Soon I must return to the feast to toast my friends of Frey. They watch me, sir. Day and night their eyes are on me. Noses sniffing for some whiff of treachery. You saw them, the arrogant Sir Jared and his nephew Rhaegar, that smirking worm who wears a dragon's name. Behind them both stand Simon, clinking coins. That one has bought and paid for several of my servants and two of my knights. One of his wife's handmaids has found a way into the bed of my own fool. If Stannis wonders that my letters say so little, it is because I dare not even trust my own maester. Theomor is all head and no heart. You heard him in my hall. Maesters are supposed to put aside old loyalties when they don their chains, but I cannot forget 
that Theomor was born a Lannister of Lannisport and claimed some distant kinship to the Lannisters of Casterly Rock. Foes and false friends are all around me, Lord Davos. They infest my city like roaches, and at night I feel them crawling over me. My son Wendell came to the twins a guest. He ate Lord Walder's bread and salt and hung his sword upon the wall to feast with friends. And they murdered him. Murdered, I say, and made the phrase choke upon their fables. I drink with Jared, jape with Simon, promise Rhaegar the hand of my own beloved granddaughter. But never think that means I have forgotten. The North remembers, Lord Davos, the North remembers, and the mummer's farce is almost done. So Lord Wyman Manderley there, declaring his hatred of phrase to Davos and leaving no doubt to readers that he's conspiring against the Boltons. In that line, the mummer's farce is almost done, really provokes a chill in us, just as it did to Davos. And so in that scene, Lord Wyman is explaining to Davos the meaning of his captivity and feigned death. Yeah, and this sheds some light onto the rumour Davos heard earlier that Lord Wyman was turning a deaf ear to Robert Glover's pleas for fighting men, even though it stood in contrast to another rumour he'd heard in White Harbour that any boy stands five feet tall can find a place in his lordship's barracks long as he can hold a spear. Right, it seems Lord Wyman has been playing a long game, raising men and preparing for war in secret, while making a grand show of turning his back on his former loyalties, bending his knee, and forging new alliances with Freys in order to get his son, Wyllys, returned to him. He tells Davos, When treating with liars, even an honest man must lie. I did not dare defy King's Landing so long as my last living son remained a captive. Lord Tywin Lannister wrote me himself to say that he had Wyllys. If I would have him freed unharmed, he told me, I must repent my treason, yield my city, declare my loyalty to the boy king on the Iron Throne, and bend my knee to Roose Bolton, his warden in the north. Should I refuse, Wyllys would die a traitor's death, White Harbor would be stormed and sacked, and my people would suffer the same fate as the reigns of Castamere. And so began the Mummer's farce, in which Manderley played a game of diplomacy with the visiting Freys, who had murdered his other son, and was finally able to prove his new loyalty once and for all with the feigned death of Stannis's hand and envoy, Davos Seaworth. And when he makes that declaration to Davos that we started with, Davos sees his opportunity and tells him that Stannis will give him the justice that he seeks. But Robert Glover replies, Your loyalty does you honour, my lord, but Stannis Baratheon remains your king, not our own. A curious statement from someone whose own king has been recently murdered, as Davos points out. But Manderly tells Davos, The young wolf is dead, but that brave boy was not Lord Eddard's only son. And then they produce Theon Greyjoy's squire Wex and reveal his knowledge of what happened at Winterfell. Yeah, and it turns out that Manderley and Glover have been able to piece together much of what the mute Wex witnessed by asking him the right questions. 
And as Mandalay tells Davos, Roos Bolton lies about his part in the Red Wedding and his bastard lies about the fall of Winterfell. And yet, so long as they held wireless, I had no choice but to eat all this excrement and praise the taste. <laughs> well, what's interesting there is his certainty that Roos Bolton lied about his part in the Red Wedding. And the explanation can be found in Robert Glover's recent past. Going all the way back to A Clash of Kings, Arya witnessed Roos Bolton dictating a message for Lord Helmand Talhart to Kyburn while at Harrenhal. Tell him to put the captives at Darry to the sword and the castle to the torch by command of the king. Then he is to join forces with Robert Glover and strike east toward Duskendale. Those are rich lands and hardly touched by the fighting. It is time they had a taste. Glover has lost a castle and Talhart a son. Let them take their vengeance on Duskendale. And the next we hear of Duskendale is in a Tyrion chapter in Storm when Tywin tells him, A large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallheart and Robert Glover are descending towards Duskendale. I've sent Lord Tarly to meet them, while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallheart and Glover will be caught between them with a third of Stark's strength. Then, of course, Roos has informed Tywin of his plan, by which he aimed to rid Rob of many of his most loyal supporters and a third of his army, while proving his newfound loyalty to House Lannister. In the ambush, Helmand Tallheart was killed and Glover was taken captive. And while Rob later ransoms Robert Glover, in spite of what he sees as an obvious blunder, Roos Bolton's words to Rob on the subject and Storm make his betrayal plain. Here's the passage. Duskendale, Rob made the word a curse. Robert Glover will answer for that when I see him, I promise you. A folly, Lord Bolton agreed, but Glover was heedless after he learned that Deepwood Mott had fallen. Grief and fear will do that to a man. So Roos, having sent false orders to Tallheart and Glover, then blamed Robert for the folly and no doubt never expected to have to defend his lies, since everyone who witnessed them is now dead, with the exception of Great John Umber. But Robert should be able to connect the dots from the Duskendale orders that came from Harrenhal to the Lannister ambush, and Roos surviving the Red Wedding and being named Warden of the North by Tywin Lannister. There should be no doubt that Roos was heavily involved in the planning of the Red Wedding months before it happened. Okay, so now we have Manderley and Glover with as good as confirmation of the treachery of House Bolton. And we shouldn't forget that Lord Wyman was a cousin of Lady Donella Hornwood, who had offered to marry her to protect her from Ramsay back in A Clash of Kings at the Winterfell Harvest Feast, and later briefly seized her castle to prevent Ramsay from claiming it after her death. And since they are talking about their knowledge of Rickon Stark being alive, it seems at face value that their conspiracy is quite simple. Here's a quote. Roose Bolton has Lord Eddard's daughter. To thwart him, White Harbor must have Ned's son and the direwolf. The wolf will prove that the boy is who we say he is, should the Dreadfort attempt to deny him. That is my price, Lord Davos. Smuggle me back, my liege lord, and I will take Stannis Baratheon as my king. Yeah, Manderley reminds Davos that he has ships in White Harbour, which he shrewdly guesses Davos already knows. 
though he also informs him that he has an equal number hidden up the white knife. He also tells him, Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other lord north of the neck. My walls are strong and my vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. I can deliver King Stannis the allegiance of all the lands east of the White Knife, from the Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch. All this I pledge to do if you will meet my price. So for all intents and purposes, it seems that Manderley and Glover intend to proclaim Rickon Stark, Lord of Winterfell and King in the North. There's some confusing talk about taking Stannis as their king, but just moments before, Robert Glover had reminded Davos that Stannis is not their king. And we can't forget that it seems like Robert has been in touch with his brother Galbert, as we mentioned in the last segment, and that Galbert Glover could hold a very different opinion about who should be succeeding Rob as king in the north. And here's where the Grand Northern Conspiracy goes a bit out on a limb, because in the absence of actual evidence, we can really only speculate what the true motives of these men is. And while some fans hold that Mansley does indeed intend to support Rickon Stark as the new king in the north, perhaps acting as his regent and protector, other fans point to the possibility that he may know about Rob's will and is actually being less than truthful to Davos. Right, and in support of that, we can look to a couple of elements of the conversation between the three men. First, both Manderley and Glover seem to go out of their way to adhere to the usual nonsense about bastards being inferior and base. Here's a quote. The evil is in Ramsay's blood, said Robert Glover. He is a bastard born of rape, a snow, no matter what the boy king says. Was ever snow so black? asked Lord Wyman. Okay, so while they're talking about Ramsay there... Eid points out a couple of things that make people wonder if they are in fact trying to divert attention from Ned's fourth son. First, Robert Glover has been the guardian of Lord Hallis Hornwood's bastard son, Larence, who was mentioned in Clash as a possible heir to his father, which solution was said would please the Glovers. And the steward from Deepwood Mott reported to Sir Roderick that the boy had wits and courage. Right, so Robert doesn't really seem to be that prejudiced against bastards in his own home. Secondly, there's this statement. The wolf will prove the boy is who we say he is should the Dreadfort attempt to deny him. Now, a direwolf pet is all well and good, but there's someone well known to Davos who could certainly identify Rickon, and that is his half-brother Jon Snow at the Wall. And some see this as a diversionary tactic that supports the idea that Manderley and Glover's true candidate is Jon Snow. Keeping in mind Roos's comment that boy lords are the bane of any house. And really supporting the idea from a logical perspective is the fact that Wex has just informed them that two of Lord Eddard's sons survived the sack of Winterfell of whom Rickon is the younger. Have these men truly given up Bran for lost? 
Is Rickon simply the path of least resistance? That is, a legitimate candidate that they have a good chance of locating and putting up against the Boltons? Is the idea of communication and unity of purpose among the Northern Lords simply the constructs of wishful and emotionally scarred fans? Or are they truly conspiring with other Lords to declare Jon Snow the King in the North? (laughs) Well, as we see it, there is some truth to be found here, but we probably can't know the truth of their goals at this point. Only the Winds of Winter will reveal what Lord Wyman's endgame truly is. But we suspect that there's some other option, based on Jon Snow's actions at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Assuming he survives into the Winds of Winter, we do think that, at the very least, Jon might accept the position of regent or war leader for his younger sibling, and that such a compromise would be acceptable if indeed there are disparate factions in this conspiracy. But there is one thing we can be sure of in terms of Wyman Mandley's intentions, and that is his desire to seek revenge on the Boltons and Freys for the death of his son. This has been very clearly communicated during this meeting, and near the end of it, we get a big hint about one thing he has in mind. Yes, we do. Now, Manderley tells Davos that he'll be attending the Bolton wedding at Winterfell, as commanded by Ruth Bolton. And he mentions that he'll go by barge and litter since he is, quote, too fat to sit a horse. But he also mentions his guests of House Frey, who have no horses of their own to ride, and has a very curious exchange with Davos about them. Here it is. I shall present each of them with a palfrey as a guest gift. Do hosts still give guest gifts in the South? Some do, my lord on the day their guest departs. Perhaps you understand then. So, it appears that the guest gift is a symbol of the end of the guest-host relationship. Bestowing such gifts is nothing short of a declaration that the ancient laws of hospitality have ceased to apply between the two parties. And with that in mind, we recall Old Nan's words as Bran recalled the tale of the rat cook back in Storm, a man has a right to vengeance. Right, so we mentioned this earlier, but in light of what happens next with Lord Wyman, we'll take a closer look now. The story begins with a recipe of sorts. The rat cook cooked the son of the Andal King in a big pie with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, and a dark red Dornish wine. Then he served him to his father, who praised the taste and had a second slice. And after the recipe, the story continues. Afterwards, the gods transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young. He had roamed in the nightfall ever since devouring his children. And old Nan made sure to emphasise the bran... It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, nor for serving the Andal king his son in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. And so, as we mentioned earlier, this emphasises the importance of guest right in northern culture. But what we want to draw attention to in this case is the punishment meted out by the gods to the man who broke the guest right. He was cursed to henceforth 
only eat his own young. And with that in mind, let's take a look at what happened to Lord Wyman and his guests of House Frey after they left White Harbor. Okay, in dance we see Ramsay arrive back in Barrowton with a party of hunters after being out searching for 16 days. Reek asks Big Walder Frey, Did you find your cousins, my lord? And Big Walder replies, No, I never thought we would. They're dead. Lord Wyman had them killed. That's what I would have done if I was him. So, as we get more information, we learn that somewhere along the way, those three Freys, Rhaegar, Simon and Jared, parted ways with Lord Wyman, who was keeping too slow a pace for their liking. And remember that Lord Wyman was careful to proclaim his intention of giving each of them a palfrey as a guest gift when they departed White Harbor. In fact, later in A Dance with Dragons, when he's become much less careful to appear friendly with the phrase, he has this exchange with Sir Hostine. Where are my kin, Manderly? Tell me that, your guests who brought your son back to you. His bones, you mean. I recall them well. Rhaegar of the round shoulders with his glib tongue. Bold Sir Jared, so swift to draw his steel. Simon the spymaster, always clinking his coins. They brought home Wendell's bones. It was Tywin Lannister who returned Wyllis to me, safe and whole as he had promised. A man of his word, Lord Tywin, seven save his soul. The road has many dangers, sir. I gave your brothers guest gifts when we took our leave of White Harbor. We swore we would meet again at the wedding. Many and more bore witness to our parting. (laughs) So, all in all, it seems highly likely that Lord Wyman has had the three Freys killed. Then, in the Prince of Winterfell chapter, Theon describes Ramsay and Fake Eye's wedding feast and notes, the Lord of White Harbour had furnished the food and drink. He goes on to describe not only the drink, but the food. The wedding guests gorged on cod cakes and winter squash, hills of neeps and great round wheels of cheese, on smoking slabs of mutton and beef ribs charred almost black, and lastly, on three great wedding pies, as wide across as wagon wheels, their flaky crusts stuffed to bursting with carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, mushrooms, and chunks of seasoned pork swimming in a savoury brown gravy. Ramsay hacked off slices with his falchion, and Wyman Manderley himself served presenting the first steaming portions to Roose Bolton and his fat fray wife, the next to Sir Hostine and Sir Aenys, the sons of Walder Frey. The best pie you have ever tasted, my lords, the fat lords declared. Wash it down with arbor gold and savour every bite. I know I shall. Though we're also told that, quote, true to his word, Manderley devoured six portions, two from each of the three pies, and that later, Lord Manderley was so drunk, he required four strong men to help him from the hall. We should have a song about the rat cook, he was muttering as he staggered past Theon, leaning on his knife. Singer, give us a song about the rat cook. 
So, setting aside the horror of it all, forced cannibalism by the wedding guests first and foremost, it seems like we have a pretty clear parallel of the rat cook here. From the recipe for the pie to a northern cook seeking vengeance by serving up the sons of an Andal lord in a pie. But given the fact that not only are Simon and Jared the brothers of Aenys and Hostein and uncles to the rest of the Freys at Winterfell, but that Rhaegar Frey is actually the son of Aenys Frey, there's a subtlety here that's easy to miss. Remember, the gods transform the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young. And... It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. Right, so Lord Wyman is not only taking his vengeance, which he's entitled to do, and he's not breaking any laws while he's at it, having ended the guest-host relationship with those guest gifts, but he's also enacting the judgment of the gods upon the phrase by condemning them to eat their own young for the crime of breaking the guest right. And then, having taken his vengeance, he proceeds to act as one who no longer has any fear of death or hope of life, being increasingly and deliberately provocative to the phrase as the atmosphere in Winterfell grows more and more tense when snows set in and men begin to die mysteriously. This reaches a climax with the death of Little Walder. Yeah, it does. Little Walder is found dead in a snowbank and covered with blood. Big Walder implicates some men of White Harbour and Hostine confronts Lord Wyman, who replies with stunning callousness. I confess that I know little of this poor boy. Lord Ramsay's squire, was he not? How old was the lad? Nine on his last name day. So young, said Wyman Manderley, though mayhaps this was a blessing. Had he lived, he would have grown up to be a fray. Oh, wow. And so the ensuing brawl after that statement leaves six White Harbour men, two freys, and one of Ramsay's boys dead, a dozen more wounded, and Lord Wyman himself bleeding on the floor. In response to this, Roos orders the Freys and Manderleys to make ready to march on Stannis, as he's just received word of Stannis's location. And while the wounded Lord Wyman, who is, quote, too fat to sit a horse at any rate, will no doubt stay behind, it's pretty clear that his 300 men will head out into the storm with the Freys, since we know from the Theon Winds of Winter sample chapter that they're actually on their way to the Crofter's village. But these knights and soldiers are obviously only a fraction of Lord Wyman's strength. Remember that he told Davos that he commands more heavy horse than any other lord north of the Neck, and has a fleet of near 50 warships ready to deploy. He's been drafting any boy tall enough to hold a spear into his service, and yet he travels to Winterfell with only 300 men, including 100 knights, at least some of whom are described as greybeards, which is perhaps an example of the cultural practice that both Ayer and John recall learning about from Old Nan, when the snows fall and food grows scarce, 
The old men gather up what strength remains in them and announce that they are going hunting. Some are found come spring. More are never seen again. So, with winter coming and many of these men not expecting to survive it, are the old men embarking on a final service to their liege lords? And while we'll be discussing that idea more later, we're left with many other questions here. What about the rest of Manderley's forces? What happened to Robert Glover? Was he left in command of White Harbor's troops and or ships? Is the strength of House Manderley a Chekhov's army, even now lurking in the snow and about to be deployed in the opening of the Winds of Winter? Who else is involved in Manderley's plot? Remember, he told Davos that the locks and the flints, and in fact, all of the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch, would follow his lead. That's right, and once again, there's some overlap with the houses that are represented inside Winterfell there. But there are a couple of other houses with men and women within Winterfell who may be involved. The Umbers, who were commanded by Sir Roderick Cassell in Clash to work with Lord Manderley to build that fleet of warships, now lying in wait at White Harbour. And the Dustins, represented by Lady Barbary Dustin, whose strange behaviour during Theon's dance chapters has made her a focus of those analysing the conspiracy in the North. So, in our next segment, we'll look at the Umbers, the Dustins, and all the other lords inside Winterfell, and what's been going on there, including the potential for conspiracy between the inhabitants of the castle. First, though, here's Lady Dustin herself reminding the men of House Frey that the North remembers. Lord Wyman is not the only man who lost kin at your red wedding, Frey. Do you imagine Horsebane loves you any better? If you did not hold the Great John, he would pull out your entrails and make you eat them as Lady Hornwood ate her fingers. Flints, Kerwins, Tallhearts, Slates, they all had men with the young wolf. House Riswell, too. Even Dustin's out of Barrowton. The North remembers Frey. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So Lady Barbary Dustin there, reminding Aenys Frey that every house that is present in Winterfell lost men at the Red Wedding. And it's her use of the phrase, the North remembers, 
that puts us squarely in the sights of those looking for evidence of conspiracies among the Northern Lords. Yes, that, combined with two other things about the full passage. First is her reference to Lady Hornwood eating her fingers, which many take as a not-so-subtle warning to Roos that Ramsay's atrocities have not been forgotten either. The second is definitely more subtle. The description of her smile as she says the words, The North Remembers. Lady Dustin parted her lips in a thin, feral smile. Right, so feral meaning like a wild animal. Perhaps in this sense, implying Lady Dustin's loyalty to the direwolf of Stark, the ultimate wild animal. Or at least indicating that she is not the tame and loyal vassal Roos hopes she is. In that light, let's have a quick rundown of the houses that are present at Winterfell. Okay, so we know that the Dustins, Riswells, and Stouts are there, along with men from the Hornwood and the Dreadfort, a couple of thousand Freys, Wyman Manderley, Old Lord Locke, Hother Horsbane Umber, and the Bard Abel and his spearwives. About 6,000 men in all, going by Fionn's report to Stannis in the Winds of Winter chapter. And besides those that are specifically mentioned, we can gain some insight from the descriptions of the banners Theon sees. Remember, he grew up in the north, and these sigils are as good as neon signs to him, saying, House Tallheart is here, House Kerwin, and House Flint of Flint's fingers, too. Interestingly, none of those three houses seems to have sent their lords or ladies, although the heir to House Kerwin, Jonelle Kerwin, was recently at Barrowton, and Castle Kerwin is only half a day's ride away. Well, that's an interesting tidbit that will segue nicely into our next avenue of discussion. We shouldn't forget that Lady Janelle's brother, Clay, was killed by Dreadfort men at the sack of Winterfell, facts of which she may now be aware, given her proximity to Winterfell and the likelihood of survivors carrying tales. Secondly, that very proximity makes it highly likely that the Kerwin family was well acquainted with the Starks, and that not only might Janelle know that Ramsay's wife isn't Arya, but that she might recognise Jane Poole. In fact, she may have already done so at Barrowton. So it's highly likely that Lady Janelle was allowed or even encouraged to make her excuses and stay away from the wedding. But she did send men who are present in the force Roose has assembled. And now speaking of fake Arya, are these lords and ladies all really convinced of her identity? Early on, we see her fail completely to convince Jamie Lannister when it says in A Storm of Swords, Jamie had never paid much attention to Arya Stark, but it seemed to him that this girl was older. And then there's Theon, who of course wasn't fooled for a second. He spends quite a bit of time thinking about how Jane's eyes are the wrong color. Is there anyone else who might notice? Does anyone believe Jane is Arya? Well, of the lords inside Winterfell, it seems highly doubtful. Lady Dustin, who at one time knew the Starks well and had custody of Jane prior to her wedding, makes her doubts clear, though she doesn't seem that bothered. When she says to Theon, dressing her in grey and white serves no good if the girl is left to sob. The Freys may not care, but the Northmen. They fear the Dreadfort, but they love the Starks. And it's possible that she may have shared those doubts with her kin, the Riswells, and possibly her bannerman, Lord Stout. And we may also have been given a clue to another person likely to spot the deception when, in a feast for crows, 
Arya recalls she had visited White Harbor with her father twice, but she knew King's Landing better. Yeah, that's right. So Lord Wyman, who's apparently met the real Arya, may have spotted the imposter. And we shouldn't forget that the bard Abel, who of course is none other than the glamoured Mance Raider sent by Mel to rescue Arya, last visited Winterfell at the welcoming feast for King Robert, where, by his own admission, he made note of Lord Eddard's children. And speaking of Lord Wyman and Abel, some fans see a clue that the imposter has been noticed in one of the songs Lord Wyman requests at the wedding feast. Give us the night that ended, singer, he bellowed. The bride will like that one, I know. Or sing to us of brave young Danny Flint and make us weep. So Danny Flint was a young girl who dressed up as a boy to join the Night's Watch and ended up being horrifically raped and murdered at the night fort. A strange song to request for a wedding, unless you make the connection that she was an imposter who suffered a tragic fate. Could Wyman be hinting at something there? We certainly see him using song not long after this to hint at his agenda when he calls for the song of the rat cook. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a tactic George would use. And then there's one other possibility for someone in Winterfell who would recognize Arya. In our last episode, we considered the identity of the hooded man that Theon encounters in the chapter A Ghost in Winterfell and concluded that it might be Harwin sent by Lady Stoneheart to determine if the girl who was brought north in a closed carriage with Roose Bolton was truly her daughter. Now, Harwin would be an excellent candidate since he grew up at Winterfell, he saw Arya very recently, and would likely be someone she would trust. If Harwin was at Winterfell, whether or not he made contact with any of the lords inside, he could even now be bringing news of the deception back to Lady Stoneheart in the Riverlands. Okay, so the substitution of another girl for Arya Stark is possibly an open secret at Winterfell. And there's another thing that seems a bit off about the situation there. Earlier in Dance, Robert Glover told Davos, Bolton has sent forth ravens, summoning all the lords of the north to Barriton. He demands homage and hostages, and witnesses to the wedding of Arya Stark and his bastard Ramsay Snow, by which match the Boltons mean to lay claim to Winterfell. And it doesn't escape Roos that when Lord Wyman arrives in Barrowton, he arrives without hostages. But in fact, none of the other lords appear to have delivered hostages. It's never mentioned, nor are the lords of the north who didn't send representatives at all. Notably, the Mormonts, Glovers, Reeds, and all the mountain clans. And then Lady Dustin reminds Theon that Old Horsebane is only here because the phrase hold the great John captive. And do you imagine the Hornwood men have forgotten the bastard's last marriage and how his lady wife was left to starve, chewing her own fingers? So it's clear that the Bolton alliance and the ruse of Ramsay's marriage to Arya Stark seems to be resting on very thin ice. And while we can't ignore the possibility that some of these lords may have only put in their appearance to either confirm the identity of the bride or to save themselves from Lord Roos's wrath, The fact that none of the heirs to the houses seem to be present and that some of the men accompanying the lords are noted to be greybeards brings us back to something we mentioned in the last segment. 
the northern practice of old men going into the wilderness to spare their families the burden of feeding them for a long winter. Right, so again, we speculate that perhaps the men who went to Winterfell didn't necessarily expect to survive the experience. And there could be some fatalism going on, which might ultimately make those men very dangerous to have it once back. And the fact that this coalition rests on shaky ground is illustrated when a string of mysterious deaths occurs and tensions begin to rise inside the castle. Yeah, we mentioned in our last episode that we see a lot of reason to lay most of the deaths at the door of Abel's spearwives, and that we believe the unifying factor in the victims is perhaps something they saw rather than something to do with who they were. But there's something interesting that's mentioned about Lord Wyman in the course of the investigation into the deaths that lends a lot of weight to the idea that he's continuing to plot even inside the walls of Winterfell. Well, it's in this scene we opened with, where Theon has been brought before Roos to answer questions about his movements around the castle, and Lady Dustin ends up delivering her powerful reminder to the phrase. Sir Aenys Frey declared, We must look at Manderley. Lord Wyman loves us not. But Lord Riswell wasn't convinced, and replied, He loves his steaks and chops and meat pies, though. Prowling the castle by dark would require him to leave the table. The only time he does that is when he seeks the privy for one of his hour-long squats. Okay, so Wyman is dismissed as a perpetrator, and so is Theon for that matter. But the comment about the privy brings us back to something Lord Wyman said to Davos back in White Harbour when they met in secret during Wyllis's homecoming feast. I have just come from the high table. I have eaten too much as ever. And all White Harbour knows my bowels are bad. My friends of Frey will not question a lengthy visit to the privy, we hope. So, a lengthy visit to the privy is indeed an excuse Wyman has used in the past to cover up plotting. Since it's been mentioned again in Winterfell, we think it's pretty clear that we're supposed to think about continued plotting. And as for whom Lord Wyman might be plotting with, we can look at a couple candidates. First, recall that Wyman told Davos that the flints of Widow's Watch and the locks would follow his lead. Now, old Lord Locke is noted to be present, although his heir, who may have been in White Harbor and seen by Davos, is not. And so is Hawther Horsebane Umber, who, as we mentioned earlier, had been commanded by Roger Cassell to aid the Manderleys in the construction of their fleet by providing them with timber. Yeah, and with a fleet of near 50 warships now ready, we can assume that over the many months since the Harvest Feast at Winterfell, there has been considerable contacts between the two men. A prospect's made even more interesting by the fact that it appears that Hotharumba was one of the two men, the other being Arnulf Karstark, that Theon witnessed dining with Ramsay at the Dreadfort early in Dance. And as Yeed points out, there's not a hint of Umber having said a word to the Boltons about all those trees they'd been sending to White Harbour. That's true. And so it appears that Horsbane isn't being completely honest with Bruce, and the connection between Manderley and Umber becomes very interesting when Theon observes Horsbane Umber talking quietly with Harwood Stout over breakfast. Harwood Stout, as we mentioned, is a bannerman to Lady Dustin. The Theon then leaves the Great Hall and wanders the castle. 
and out in the castle yard, he observes some squires building snowmen. Curiously, these take the forms of none other than Lord Wyman Manderley, Hawther Horsebay Number, one-armed Lord Harwood Stout, and Lady Barbary Dustin. And fans have made note of the grouping of those four in light of what we're discussing here, and wondered if it's a purposeful hint by George. At any rate, when Theon returns to the Great Hall for the next meal, he's immediately approached by Lady Dustin, who's developed a sudden and keen interest in seeing the Wintervale crypts. Now, up until this moment, Lady Barbara Dustin has been presented as a loyal supporter of Roose Bolton. Roose tells Ramsay and Barrowton, Barbara Dustin is my second wife's younger sister. She was fond of my late son and suspects you of having some part in his demise. Lady Barbara is a woman who knows how to nurse a grievance. Be grateful for that. Barrowton is staunch for Bolton, largely because she still holds Ned Stark to blame for her husband's death. So we're led to believe, and Roos apparently believes, that Lady Barbary holds a long-term grudge against Ned Stark and remains loyal to House Bolton after the death of her sister and nephew, even though she suspects Ramsay of being involved in Domerick's death. Upon the very morning that Horsbane Umber, a known associate of Wyman Manderley, is mentioned to be talking quietly with Harwood Stout, a known associate of Lady Dustin, she develops an urge to visit the crypts of Winterfell. Hmm, so maybe she's just bored. Seriously, what message could have been passed to lead Lady Barbary to the crypts? Well, there's a large hint once she and Theon get down there. In the midst of some very interesting conversation with Theon, where she not only warns him about Arya's tears, but tells the story of her history with the Starks, she manages to comment on the missing swords from the crypts. And that is probably one of the biggest hints of conspiracy and secret messages being passed in Winterfell that we have. It could be. It's important to remember that Lord Wyman has Theon Squire Wex in White Harbour, and as they told Davos after Ramsay's men sacked Winterfell, unquote, Wex climbed the heart tree and hid himself among the leaves. Bolton's men searched the godswood twice and killed the men they found there, but none thought to clamber up into the trees. And so from that vantage point, he tells Manderley and Glover, he saw six people and two direwolves emerge from the crypts. From there, he would have witnessed Bran and Rickon's brief reunion with Maester Lewin, Bran's tale of hiding in the crypts, and Lewin's death, and probably these details as well. Osha carried her long oaken spear in one hand and the torch in the other. A naked sword hung down her back, one of the last to bear Micken's mark. He had forged it for Lord Eddard's tomb to keep his ghost at rest. Mira had claimed Lord Rickard's blade, though she complained that it was too heavy. Brandon took his namesakes, the sword made for the uncle he had never known. And so the theory goes that Lady Barbary has ventured to the crypts to confirm the information that she might have just been given, that Bran and Rickon survived the sack of Winterfell which was perpetrated not by Theon Greyjoy, but by Ramsay Bolton. And this information, especially the details of the swords, could only have come from Wex Pike and via Lord Wyman. 
And having confirmed it, and in combination with her conviction that Ramsay is responsible for the death of her nephew Domeric, that Lady Barbary has now changed her allegiance once and for all to the Starks and the lords who would see a Stark in Winterfell once again. But what about all the things she says to Theon while they're down there in the crypts? When Theon asks her why she hates the Starks, she turns the question around on him, replying, for the same reason you love them, and asks him, why? His reply, I wanted to be one of them, is completed by Lady Dustin, and never could. We have more in common than you know. Lady Barbary is careful to emphasize her hatred of Ned, and implies she had spies in Rob's host. She goes on to tell of her relationship with Brandon, his betrothal to Cat, her hatred of Lord Rickards and eventual marriage to Lord William Dustin. She mentions that her father had nursed some hope of wedding me to Brandon's brother Eddards, but Catelyn Tully got that one as well. She also mentions her anger at the fact that Ned brought Lyanna's bones back from Dawn, but only Lord Dustin's horse, and her determination that Ned's bones would never be interred into the crypts. But the horse had been her wedding gift to her husband, and it was noted to be the pride of her father, Lord Riswell's herds. And so it was a significant gesture on Ned's part to bring it back, considering that it doesn't appear that he made comparable efforts for his other friends and companions, and the families of whom all continue to be numbered among the Stark's most staunch supporters. In fact, considering the parallel that she's just drawn between herself and Theon, and remembering that we're speculating that she now knows that Theon neither killed Bran and Rickon nor sacked Winterfell, it seems like she just might be building up this tale of hatred as a cover to convince Theon just in case he carries the tale of their little excursion back to Ramsay. Yeah, she takes care to warn Theon not to repeat anything she'd said. Here's the quote. You would do well not to repeat anything I might have said down there. Is that understood? But it seems that she's been very careful that what she said points only to her motivation of bearing a grudge against Starks. She's very careful to mention the swords only in passing and covers up her observation with these stories about her desire to be a Stark which are sure to strike a chord with her guide. But it's so specifically written that she notes the missing swords, and all four of them, that we believe that it has to be significant. And as events play out, we do get some further hints that perhaps the Dustins and Riswells have changed allegiance, or maybe were never staunch for Bolton after all. First is the passage we opened with, Lady Barbary warning not only the phrase, but possibly Roos as well, of the North's long memory. And second is in Theon's final A Dance with Dragons chapter, where discussion has turned to the inevitable battle with Stannis. To fight Lord Stannis, we would first need to find him, Roos Riswell pointed out. Our scouts go out the hunter's gate, but of late none of them return. So, bearing in mind that none of these scouts have been discovered by Stannis, we have to consider other options for their fate. First, of course, is that they've become lost in the storm. That means every one of these Northmen has gone out and been lost in this big storm, which we find quite odd. 
Second is that they've gone somewhere else other than looking for Stannis, that they're bearing messages and that by not returning, they're participating in some plot by their lords inside the castle. Yeah, that's right. And that's where the mysteriously missing Robert Glover and Lord Manderley's army might come back into the story. Remember that Manderley had told Davos that he could field more heavy horse than any lord in the north, and that he'd been raising men in White Harbor, and that all of the petty lords from the lands east of the White Knife, from Widow's Watch and Ramsgate, to the Sheep's Head Hills and the headwaters of the Broken Branch, would follow him. That is a significant portion of the north, and it's estimated that his army would at least equal, if not exceed, Bolton's strength. Yeah, and combined with the other houses that are likely to join him, Locks, Flints of Widow's Watch, Glovers, Hornwoods, Kerwins, and Tallhearts, to name a few, it's possible they might even outnumber the Boltons with their fray allies. At any rate, the theory goes that these scouts may be bringing messages to Robert Glover, who is lying in wait at the headwaters of the White Knife with his army, to be ready to join up with Mandalese 300 when they march out the gates with the phrase to meet Stannis. Which could leave the 2,000 Freys trapped between the hammer and anvil of Stannis's army and Manderley's. Stannis now has around 5,000 men, and given that Bolton had outnumbered Stannis by 5 to 1 before he left the Wall, a little math tells us that his army is comprised of nearly 80% Northmen. These are clansmen, Mormonts, Glovers, and, to quote Stannis' letter to John, survivors from the battle outside the gates of Winterfell, men once sworn to the Hornwoods, the Kerwoods, and the Tallhearts. Okay, so having established the likelihood of plotting going on inside Winterfell, the dubious loyalties of those houses that Roos has gathered there, and identified some possibilities for outcomes, we're now going to circle back to Stannis' camp and look carefully at the composition of the armies and the motivations of the men who have joined the Southern King. First, here are a few words from Big Bucket Wool. Winter is almost upon us, and winter is death. I would sooner my men die fighting for the Ned's little girl than alone and hungry in the snow, weeping tears that freeze upon their cheeks. No one sings songs of men who die like that. As for me, I am old. This will be my last winter. Let me bathe in Bolton blood before I die. I want to feel it splatter across my face when my axe bites deep into a Bolton skull. I want to lick it off my lips and die with a taste of it on my tongue. So, words there from Hugo Wool, incidentally a kinsman of Theo Wool, who accompanied Ned to the Tower of Joy, who, unlike Barbary Dustin, doesn't appear to hold any grudges in the matter. In fact, his words there not only show his continued support of House Stark and the Ned, and his hatred of the Boltons, but they also touch once more upon that theme of old men sacrificing themselves in the face of a long winter, which we'll address once again in this segment. Okay, so Stannis Baratheon has cobbled together an army that is now around 5,000 strong, as we just mentioned. And as he told John in a letter sent from Deepwood Mott, it's composed of upwards of 4,000 clansmen. 
Flints, Norries, Wolves and Liddles, fighters from Bear Island, men sworn to the Glovers, and quote, survivors from the battle outside the gates of Winterfell, men once sworn to the Hornwoods, the Kerwins and the Tallhearts. Yes, and they've managed to march through the Wolfswood to a crofter's village three days' march from Winterfell. And though it says the army is freezing and starving as they sit trapped in that village, the point is made several times that the southern men are taking the brunt of the hardship, while the northerners don't seem phased by the weather at all. Hugo Wool laughs when one of Stannis's men calls this storm winter and tells him, This is no winter. Up in the hills we say that autumn kisses you, but winter fucks you hard. This is only autumn's kiss. Yes, and besides being one of the more colourful commentators in Stannis's group, Wool is pretty important in making the case that the agenda of the clansmen who have joined Stannis is to rescue Aya and gain revenge upon the Boltons. Their principal objective is made more than clear in Asher's POV when it says, Roose Bolton could not be suffered to hold Winterfell and the Ned's girl must be rescued from the clutches of his bastard. And Wool actually implies that the southern men are impeding their progress when he says, We should have had her and the castle both if you prancing southern jackanapes didn't piss your satin breeches at a little snow. Well, we also shouldn't forget that Stannis expected to be joined by Arnulf Karstark and Mors Umber, which would increase the size of the army and bring two of the larger houses into his camp. As Dustin Massey reminded Asha Greyjoy, Roose Bolton is feared but little loved, and his friends the phrase, the North has not forgotten the Red Wedding. Every lord at Winterfell lost kinsmen there. Stannis need only bloody Bolton, and the Northmen will abandon him. And this perhaps highlights one of the curious factors in the composition of the forces within Winterfell under Roose Bolton and those without under Stannis. Remember in the last segment we outlined those within Winterfell as Dustins, Riswells, Stouts, men from the Hornwood and the Dreadfort, Freys, Manderleys, Locks, Umbers, Tallhearts, Kerwins and Flints. Yeah, and there's a surprising amount of overlap in Stannis' army, Tallhearts, Kerwins, Hornwoods and Umbers to be specific. And between the losses at the Red Wedding and those inflicted by Ramsay and the Hornwood and at the Sack of Winterfell, these four families have as much reason to hate the Boltons as any, and as little to be loyal and fight against their own kin and neighbors. Jon Snow warned Stannis that Umber would never fight against Umber, and yet Stannis has accepted the service of Morse Umber and his green boys, whose brother Hawther is within Winterfell with the Greybeards. Yeah, and besides highlighting once again that perhaps the most dangerous roles are being taken up by the old men, who can't expect to survive the winter to come anyway, this highlights the untenable position of many of Roose Bolton's army, the fact that this is their own kin who await them outside the walls of Winterfell. Yeah, in fact, the only people we can be sure don't suffer from this conflict are the Dreadfort men in the phrase. And as far as the Umbers go, remember Lady Dustin reminding the phrase that if they did not hold the Great John, Horsebane Umber would make them suffer? Well, at least a couple of months have passed since Jamie Lannister commanded Edwin Frey to release all the Red Wedding hostages to the Iron Throne. Yeah, and with no Rivalence POV since Jamie and Brienne disappeared in dance, it's hard to tell exactly what's been going on there. And since we expect it will probably happen at some point, 
We wonder if it's possible the great John has been freed, thus relieving the umbers of the need to play nice with the phrase, especially Moores, who is positioned outside Winterfell, and according to Theon in the Winds of Winter sample chapter, is responsible for the death of Aenys Frey. In fact, besides being able to identify Arya Bolton as a fake... One of the main points in favour of Harwin being the hooded man that Theon encountered inside Winterfell is that he could have brought news of the imminent rescue of the Red Wedding prisoners to their kin in the north. Well, that speculation aside, it's certainly reasonable to think there's going to be some problem with the Bolton forces engaging Stannis' army, if it ever even comes to that. There's just too much overlap and potential conflict of interest once the phrase have been removed. And while we aren't going into the Battle on the Ice here, having covered it in our Stannis episode, we do expect that the phrase will be removed from the picture early in the Winds of Winter. Okay, so we think that it's clearly established that the Northmen with Stannis have joined him with the goal of rescuing Arya Stark and removing the Boltons from Winterfell, two things Stannis has vowed to do. But what are their intentions with regard to Stannis? Have they promised to support him as king? Or has Stannis assumed that by joining him they will continue to support him? Is the alliance with Stannis one of simple expediency, or is it, as some theorise, a more nefarious plot to see Stannis and Roos spend their respective strengths battling each other, leaving the spoils of the North ripe for the conspiring lords to seize in the name of whichever Stark claimants they mean to put forward? Well, it's certain that Arnolf Karstark, the first northern lord to pledge his strength to Stannis, was working with the Boltons all along and was part of an elaborate plot to inform on Stannis's strength and position before turning his cloak. This is made clear by Alice Karstark to Jon in A Dance with Dragons and in the Theon Winds of Winter chapter when Maester Uthor is discovered in possession of an empty raven cage, the bird having flown to Winterfell. And we actually saw that bird, by the way, arriving at Winterfell in Theon's earlier point of view in the scene where a bloody fight between Freys and Manderleys broke out in the wake of Little Wilder's death. Yeah, Morzumba, whose objective may simply be playing both sides of the fence to ensure the Great John's survival, no matter who the victors are, is definitely not being completely forthcoming about his involvement with Wyman Manderley and that fleet of warships in White Harbour no more than his brother has been with Roos. So, doubtful loyalty on the part of those two anyway, and we should remember something the Great John said back in A Game of Thrones, just before he declared Rob king in the north. Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. And he went on to say, What do they know of the wall, or the wolf's wood, or the barrows of the first men? Even their gods are wrong. And we do see plenty of conflict between Stannis's Red God and the Old Gods of the North in the Asha chapters in A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, when the Queen's men prepare to burn four men to R'hllor in an effort to obtain his fiery aid in what they see as a dire situation in the snow, an argument about gods ensues. Here's the passage. What has your southern god to do with snow? demanded Artos Flint. His black beard was crusted with ice. This is the wrath of the old gods come upon us. It is them we should appease. Aye, said Big Bucket Wool. Red Relu means nothing here. You will only make the old gods angry. 
They are watching from their island. You Northmen brought these snows upon us, insisted Corliss Penny. You and your demon trees. Relor will save us. Relor will doom us, said Artos Flint. So, in the scene that follows, Alisanne Mormont pleads off dinner, and in the dining hall it appears that the clansmen are also absent. Could they all be meeting secretly to discuss what they've just witnessed with the burning of those men? Has giving those men to the flames actually fractured Stannis' hard-won alliance? For sure, it seems obvious that the Northmen will never fully accept Stannis and his Red God, while the Queen's men, and by extension later on, Selyse and Melisandre, will have a very difficult time accepting these Northmen and their old gods. With Arnold Karstark's arrest in the Winds of Winter, no doubt after Tycho Nestoris had delivered Stannis a message from Jon Snow at the Wall, it seems like tensions might be about to boil over. Yes, they are. And in Theon's sample chapter, as Stannis meets with Asher Greyjoy, Hugo Wool and Artos Flint are waiting to talk to him on some urgent matter, Theon's fate not the least of it. And in light of Moore's Umber's intense questioning of the girl when he found her in the snow, we have to wonder if the Northmen with Stannis have accepted Jane Poole as the Ned's girl. And if so, what commitment level the Northerners will maintain with Stannis after the battle on the ice, with Arya safely en route to her brother at the Wall, the phrase presumably dead, and Stannis' alliances fraying beneath the weight of religious prejudices. Especially if Stannis declines to execute Theon Greyjoy, we see some real problems arising with this coalition. Well, again, we're not going into the upcoming situation with Stannis in great depth here, but we think there's sufficient doubt established about the loyalties of the Northmen on both sides to make outcomes far from a foregone conclusion. But speaking of Arya, that is Jane Poole, who will be en route to the Wall in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter with Tycho Nestoris, Alisanne Mormont, and Justin Massey, we're going to leave the Crofter's Village and the dubious situation there and journey up the King's Road to the Wall for a brief assessment of the situation there. But first, here are some words from one of the Liddles about the dangers of that road now compared to in the recent past. When there was a Stark in Winterfell, a maiden girl could walk the King's Road in her name-day gown and still go unmolested, and travellers could find fire, bread, and salt at many an inn and hold fast. But the nights are colder now, and doors are closed. There's squids in the wolf's wood, and flayed men ride the King's Road, asking after strangers. So that was the Liddle that Bran, Mira, Jojen and Hodor met on their journey to the Wall. Remember that Bran was pretty certain that the clans knew they were passing through their territory and it seemed clear when they met the Liddle that he knew exactly who Bran was. In which case the Liddles would have an interesting tale to pass on to their fellow clansmen and possibly their neighbours on Bear Island as well. Yeah, right. Remember that we speculated that Alison Mormont might have been in communication with the clans after receiving messages from her mother. Well, in this case, there could be a two-way flow of information. 
Certainly, as we mentioned earlier, two senior clan leaders, Lord Brandon Norrie and Torgan Flint, arrived at the wall with men in wet nurses after Stannis visited them. Both have sons in Stannis's camp, as it says in John's point of view. Both men had been too old to march with Stannis and had sent their sons and grandsons in their stead. Then it goes on, they had been quick enough to descend on Castle Black for Alice Karstark's wedding. Each had brought a wet nurse to the wall as well. John was grateful, but he did not believe for a moment that two such hoary old warriors would have hid down from their hills for that alone. Yeah, and as we mentioned earlier, proponents of the GNC surmise that the two men are there to assess Jon Snow on his qualifications to be the Stark. Given the obvious continued devotion of the clans to House Stark, if they've been told that Rob named Jon is heir, it seems reasonable to think that they might also want to assess Jon Snow's abilities. And it seems very telling that Jon tells the Nori. I may seem a green boy in your eyes, Lord Norrie, but I am still a son of Eddard Stark. Yeah, and you know more than any of his siblings throughout the series, John has been preoccupied with living up to his father's legacy. And it's more than likely that his actions and answers to the Nori and Old Flint have proved that. And speaking of Alice Karstark's wedding, as an aside, we want to mention that we think if her brother Harrion survives his captivity at Maidenpool and is ransomed home, it's highly likely that John has gone a long ways towards repairing relations between House Stark and Karstark by extending guest right and kinship right to Alice, and may have brought them back into the fold at a critical time, just when the real threat from the others sets in. Anyway, as far as we know, both Flint and Nori remain at Castle Black and are present when John is stabbed at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Their presence and possible knowledge may prove critical in the opening pages of The Winds of Winter as numerous threads begin to converge at Castle Black. Well, we've previously talked about how knowledge of Rob's will may have passed from Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover to the Northmen with both Stannis and Roose. We also discussed how knowledge of Bran and Rickon's survival may have travelled from White Harbour to Winterfell, and now from the clans to the other Northmen with Stannis and even to the Wall. But while the Norrie and Old Flint might know about both the Will and Bran and Rickon's survival, there are two other men who are due to arrive at the Wall who we think will have certain knowledge of the Will, not to mention messages from the Tullys and the BWB in the Riverlands. Remember Robin Ryger and Desmond Grell, the captain of the guard and master at arms from Riverrun? They took ship at Maidenpool near the end of Dance, bound for the Wall to take the Black after taking Jamie Lannister up on his offer to allow men of the surrendering Riverrun garrison to join the Night's Watch. Yeah, and we outlined in our Brotherhood Without Banners episode how these two men had the clear opportunity to be given messages and instructions not only from Edmure and Brendan Tully, but also Thomas Sevens from the BWB. And since their escort, Raph the Sweetling, was returned safely to King's Landing by the end of dance, we can assume that they were safely delivered to their ship at Maidenpool, itself a minor miracle, since a small company of Lannister men traveling the full width of BWB territory is a very dangerous prospect. Yeah, it seems like it's possible that the BWB knew that this group was to pass unmolested. 
And anyway, assuming they haven't been shipwrecked between Maidenpool and Eastwatch, they should be due to arrive at Castle Black early in the Winds of Winter. By the same token, Davos has been some months gone on his mission to retrieve Rickon and Shaggy Dog, and should be returning to White Harbour in the same time frame, we think. Given the stormy conditions at sea noted in previous Davos chapters, we wouldn't be at all surprised to see Davos make the shorter sea journey to Eastwatch and attempt an overland trip to White Harbour via Castle Black. Well, anything really seems possible now, and like we said, it definitely seems like threads are going to be converging early in the Winds of Winter. And we can't help remembering Roos's words to Ramsay early in A Dance with Dragons. What do you imagine is going to happen when one of Ned Stark's sons turns up? Well, that's a very good question that goes to the heart of the Grand Northern Conspiracy. If we take as a given that Rob's will legitimized John and made him his heir in the mistaken belief that Bran and Rickon are dead, and also that Davos Seaworth will be returning with Rickon in tow sometime in the Winds of Winter, having been sent to retrieve him by Wyman Manderley, what then is the objective of the Lords of the North, many of whom are plainly conspiring against the Boltons at Winterfell? And what is Jon Snow going to do, assuming he survives or is resurrected in the Winds of Winter? Well, first of all, we do think that the Will most likely named Jon Snow, and we agree with Yeed's assessment that at this point the only thing that could nullify it would be the failure or inability of the signers to spread the news. And since we've just spent a lot of time outlining how that could have happened, we definitely think it will be an issue of note early in the Winds of Winter. But we do think it's thematically quite fitting of George to introduce this conflict. First of all, you have Catelyn's objections and warnings to Rob back in Storm when he spoke of the precedence for legitimising John and releasing him from his vows. Precedent, she said bitterly. Yes, Aegon IV legitimised all his bastards on his deathbed. And how much pain, grief, war and murder grew from that? I know you trust John, but can you trust his sons? Or their sons? The Blackfire pretenders troubled the Targaryens for five generations until Barristan the Bold slew the last of them on the Stepstones. If you make John legitimate, there is no way to turn him bastard again. Should he wed and breed, any sons you may have by Jane will never be safe. And she goes on to remind Rob of his sisters, both of whom happen to still be alive, although their locations remain as much a mystery as Bran's at this point. But consider John's painful yearning to be a true-born Stark that he recalls throughout his arc. From the memory of Rob telling him he could never be the Lord of Winterfell because he's bastard-born, to his dream of killing Rob and Dance, he's nearly as conflicted about the issue as Theon. And when Stannis offered to legitimize him and give him Winterfell, it seemed like he was being given his heart's desire. But in the end, the price was too high. He could not abandon the old gods and cut down the Winterfell heart tree, as Stannis and Mel demanded. However, it seems to us that the affirmation of being legitimised by Rob's will might actually fill John's emotional need to be a Stark, even if he ultimately refuses the title upon learning of his sibling's survival. And while we certainly expect some conflict in that regard, 
it seems more likely that it will be internal. And unless John is revived with a completely new personality, he would not take the North at the expense of his siblings. Well, it is important to remember right now, though, that John does not know that his brothers are alive, nor does he know where Sansa is. And while Jane or Arya may come and go from the wall while he's out of commission without him ever learning that she's not, in fact, really Arya, we wonder if her obvious ruin would lead him to act out once again in the name of vengeance. Remember the story of Willem and Arto Stark? When Lord Willem was killed by wildlings during the invasion of Raymond Redbeard at the Battle of Long Lake, his brother Artos took up the mantle of leadership and avenged his brother, and perhaps even continued to act as a regent of sorts for his nephew Edwile, John's great-great-grandfather, who was possibly still a child at the time. Yeah, and remember that it was in a John POV that we first heard the tale of Willem and Artos. And if you try to think about what would be in character for John based on what he knows, the arc seems pretty clearly foreshadowed by his final chapters in Dance. John has proved his worthiness to lead men, to make difficult decisions and to take the long view. If that has backfired on him as far as his commitments to the Night's Watch go, or we think that the imminent threat from the others will prove the value of John's leadership style. Definitely. It will take someone who's not only resolute and capable of bringing the greatest number of allies together, but we suspect also someone who has particular characteristics that can be gained only by birth. And we're referring, of course, to RLJ, the Song of Ice and Fire, and the potential fulfillment of prophecies, all of which is outside our scope here, but which we touched on in our John and RLJ episodes. Right, but while we think John is worthy by birth and personality to lead the North in the long night to come, we expect George will continue to weave in those conflicts of the heart and that emotional greyness that his writing is known for. And in our next segment, we'll conclude by summing up the connections, discussing their thematic relevance, and introducing a few of the wild cards that could come into play in the winds of winter. But first it's time for a few words from today's sponsor. Today's episode of Radio Westeros is brought to you by White Harbor Bakers, formerly a subsidiary of King's Landing Bakers, now a wholly owned private corporation offering the finest baked goods by appointment to Lord Wyman Manderley and his liege lord, the King in the North. At White Harbor Bakers, our specialty is meat pies. Venison, pork, beef and bacon, and lamprey are some of our favorites. But we're best known for our fabulous wedding pies. They're as big as wagon wheels, with flaky crusts stuffed to bursting with carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, mushrooms, and chunks of seasoned pork swimming in a savory brown gravy. Contact us by Raven or stop by our shop to order yours today. White Harbor Bakers, 100 Merman's Court in White Harbor. The best pie you've ever tasted. You'll savor every bite. Okay, so today's sponsors are White Harbor Bakers. Lady Gwyn, are you feeling hungry after listening to that? Um, actually, that pie sounds really good, and I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I, I just might have to try it. How about you? It does sound good. <laughs> I mean, I could, I'd probably, if I was cold, I think I'd try it. You know, if I was in Winterfell and Mandley was there, I think I'd have a bite of that pie and try it. 
well, he's certainly a good salesman for it. So anyway, as we said, now we're going to conclude by summing up some of the connections and introducing what we see as wild cards that could affect the outcomes in the Winds of Winter. But first, we want to get back to that offer that Stannis made John in dance, legitimization and Winterfell in exchange for converting to R'hllor, because it underlines the problem with Stannis in the North. He's an outsider there and unfamiliar with the profound importance of the old gods to the culture, as his willingness to cut down weirwoods shows. Not only that, but given Stannis' personality and his insistence on being given what he believes is his, in this case, the homage due to the Iron Throne by members of the Seven Kingdoms, we think it very unlikely that he will leave the North to their own devices as generations of his Targaryen predecessors on the Iron Throne had done. Consider that, with the notable exception of Jaehaerys, the Old King, not one other reigning Targaryen king has ever even visited the North. Right, there were visits by the doomed prince, Jaehaerys Valerion, during the Dance of the Dragons, and by the future Aegon V in his youth and while travelling incognito. But of course, Aemon Targaryen and Brynden Rivers were at the Wall, but outside of Robert's visit early in A Game of Thrones, and look how that turned out, only one reigning king actually visited the North, and that was over 200 years ago. In the 300 years since the conquest, the North has essentially been left to rule itself, with the Stark and Winterfell as king in all but name. And surely there were taxes and homage that needed paying, but there's been no interference that would affect any change in the culture there. Yeah, we don't expect that Stannis would be content with this arrangement, especially if he contributed to Winterfell being cleared of Boltons and the Starks restored. So we expect some conflict coming up between Stannis and his new allies. Whether it's the calculated using Stannis to fight the Boltons and basically exhaust each other's resources that some fans have suggested, which would leave the Northmen free to dispose of themselves and their kingdoms as they please, or whether it's a conflict that arises naturally because of personalities and cultural differences really remains to be seen, though we do think the latter is more likely, more in keeping with the current progress of the Ark. Yeah, but we definitely think the Wall is the place to be in the beginning of the Winds of Winter, and with only Melisandre, and perhaps briefly Asha or Davos as POVs, we expect that the mystery and uncertainty will continue, because with only outsiders to relay the story, we expect that what's going on in the North will continue to be cloaked in secrecy for a time at least. Yes, so we don't necessarily expect a speedy resolution in Winds, though we do think the need for a united North will become ever more pressing as winter sets in and with it the threat of an other's invasion. And no matter how satisfying the vengeance for the Starks might be, obviously the threat posed by the new Long Night is going to have a greater impact on the plot. Well, that's true, and consider how thematically significant it will be if, in the face of this threat, the North continues to be embroiled in squabbling over the spoils, as Bruce Bolton put it, and possibly even a dynastic succession crisis. Obviously, the Starks and their supporters need to sort the more mundane issues out very quickly, and with numerous potential wildcards in play, that task may be more difficult than many GNC supporters hope. 
Yeah, let's look at a couple of those wildcards now. First, um, most often acknowledged, of course, is Rickon. We simply can't ignore the possibility that there may be a faction in the North headed by none other than Lord Wyman Manderley that would like to see a boy lord seated at Winterfell, perhaps married to Manderley's own granddaughter. And then, of course, there are Bran and Arya. Both appear to be quite busy right now doing other things, but there remains a real possibility that Arya, at least, might return to Westeros one day, which would potentially upset any number of situations. And since it's probably obvious that when we said wildcard, we meant Stark children, the last, and as we see it, biggest wildcard is Sansa Stark in the Vale Army, the true Chekhov's army of the story. Over 20,000 troops just from the Lord's Declarant, that is, five of the biggest houses of the Vale, so with the potential to actually be a much larger army than that. And with connections noted between Starks and Arryns, Royces, Templetons, and Corbrays, communication between Burrells and Flints in A Dance with Dragons, and the Bolton Red Fort connection, and Lord Protector Peter Baelish's stated goal of returning Sansa to Winterfell, we're certain the Vale is going to play a major role in the politics of the North going forward. Yeah, we really are, but we won't go into it any further here because we do have a Littlefinger episode coming up and we will save a big chunk of that episode for making these kind of predictions. So let's leave our list of wildcards there and get back to a summary of the political situation in the North in the opening pages of Winds. Okay, so to review... Knowledge of Rob's will may have passed from Mage Mormont to her daughters on Bear Island, and thence to the clans, as well as from Galbert Glover to his brother Robert, and thence to Wyman Manderley and the Northmen inside Winterfell. In addition, Galbert or Robert may have been in communication with Lady Sybil at Deepwood Mott, who could have passed information to the clansmen and Northmen with Stannis. Knowledge of Bran and Rickon's survival may have traveled from Wex Pike in White Harbor to Winterfell, and from the clans to the other Northmen with Stannis, and even to the Wall. And then there's Robin Ryger and Desmond Grell from Riverrun, who provide the connection with whatever plotting might be going on amongst the survivors of Rob's coalition in the Riverlands. And Wyman Mandley has a sizable army in hiding somewhere, along with a fleet of nearly 50 warships. Of Stannis's army... Nearly 4,000 men are Northmen who are loyal to the Starks. And of Roos's army, once the 2,000 Freys are dealt with, we'd estimate that close to half are of doubtful loyalty and from houses who would have kin with Stannis. With Roos's allies in the south about to be quite busy with an invasion from Essos, if not two, and the possibility that Moat Kaelin could be sealed against reinforcements anyway, it looks like the Boltons might soon be on their own fighting a widely arrayed coalition of Northmen that could potentially outnumber them three or four to one. Right, the Boltons don't seem to be in a very strong position now, although they could certainly make a siege of it and try to remain behind Winterfell's strong walls. But remember Theon thought in A Dance with Dragons that would be madness since they don't have the provisions to survive the long winter. Intentions are already quite high as it is. 
course, that possibility is no doubt why none of the houses delivered young hostages, and many are noted to have sent greybeards in support of Bolton. It's quite possible that the men inside Winterfell who are stark loyalists don't expect to make it out alive. The one significant unknown has always been what the Northmen's intentions are regarding Stannis Baratheon. There are those who think they may be simply using him to wear down Roose Bolton, but given the numbers arrayed against the Boltons and the fact that Stannis's southern troops are literally only about 20% of his army, we've made the case that it is perhaps his personality and lack of understanding of culture and his red god that will ultimately lead to the Northmen abandoning him. As for Jon Snow, we think that if and when he's resurrected in the Winds of Winter, he might be willing to consider leadership in the North, both for vengeance and because he sees the need to unite the region against the coming threat. But while we don't think that he would willingly disinherit his siblings, we do see the potential for some conflict arising around the wild cards of those he had previously thought dead or lost. So we see that there has been a lot of opportunity for secret communications to have taken place, much evidence that the North remains loyal to the Starks, and a whole lot of thematic sense in their continuing to be distractions to the main event of the Others' invasion. We expect some things to sort themselves out early in the Winds of Winter, while others will remain hidden until we have a POV who's in a position of trust with the Northmen. All in all, we'd assess the Grand Northern Conspiracy on the level of a resistance movement that is gaining in strength and organisation as the story progresses. Yeah, that's right. Pockets of resistance and Stark supporters have gradually made contact with each other, and on some level at least, there's now broad support for overthrowing the Boltons in favour of a Stark. Just who that Stark will be might remain to be seen, but we don't think there's any doubt that the Boltons cannot and will not maintain control of the North, especially now that they've lost two of their major playing cards in Jane Poole and Theon Greyjoy. And with that, we'll wrap up today's episode with a quote from Theon's Winds of Winter sample chapter. Here's Theon Greyjoy reminding Stannis that the North does indeed remember. The North remembers. The Red Wedding, Lady Hornwood's fingers, the sack of Winterfell, Deepwood Mott and Torrin Square. They remember all of it. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you've enjoyed our look at the political situation in the North. Up next, we have an episode all about Kyburn and Robert Strong, so we hope you'll come back for that. And now, as always, it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks so much to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us the old gods in the North, to Yeed for acting as a consultant, and to all the fans who've contributed to the GNC theory, and to Nine Inch Nails and Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use elements of their music in our production. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also donate and comment on our content there, or connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time with Kyburn. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.